I read the book and I'm ready. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined today by my co-hosts, tablet senior writer Leah Leibovitz. Shalom. And deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. We have a book. This week, a very special episode dedicated to our brand new book, The Newest Jewish Encyclopedia, which is All the Judaism, Twice the Page Count. It is a large book with little vignettes in it to give you a sense of what this book is all about. 3,000 years of Jewish history from Moses to Sandy Koufax, as they say, and down to the present day. We have a special episode dedicated to this book. And I think that we need to to give you guys a sense of like, why did we do this? I mean, we're, we're podcasters after all. No one said you have to write the definitive fun guide to Judaism. Stephanie, I think it started started with you, didn't it? Yes. So I was on my honeymoon, um, you know, it just celebrating my new marriage and just really unplugging from work and my life on this show. And we were walking on the beach in Hawaii and Ben said, you know, you three should really write a book. <laughs> and he's like, people love the show. People really connect to it. You guys should just like write a book that just like explains Judaism to people. And I was like, okay, You're staring another my time. Into one another's eyes. It's the sunset. Ben looks at you and says, My love, I think you should write a book with Mark and Liel. When two writers marry, the Butnick Cohen story. We came back and I, I brought that, you know, sort of half baked idea to you. Yeah. And the thing is that from there, I mean, it immediately struck us that, you know, thank God Ben was there to tell us what was right before our eyes, because it's kind of as if we'd been moving toward writing a book all along. Right, Liel? Yes. The amazing thing about doing the show is that, as we've said so many times, it's really started kind of on a lark. You know, we started the show because we thought maybe it'll be fun and, you know, we'll have these conversations that we have anyway. But then something happened. And, and the thing that happened is, is you guys, our listeners, the J crew out there, started tuning in and then writing to us and telling us about your lives. And as kind of clued in to Jewish life as we thought we were, we were astonished to learn how incredibly beautifully diverse Jewish life is all over this country and how many Jews have so many different, unique Jewish experiences that capture different facets of our history and our tradition and our religion and our peoplehood. And so it kind of became apparent to us that what we're all doing, you know, hosts and listeners and, and Jews everywhere, is really just trying to find a way into this tradition, a way of making it our own, a way of making it feel kind of organic to us, and that there were so many questions that so many people had and so many conversations to be had as we're sort of busy recreating this thing every day and making it new and making it ours. So we said, hey, why not write the kind of book that's 300 pages, that's not, you know, the 38-volume definitive history of everything, but rather that's the kind of book that gives you enough information and enough to really go on to feel grounded, but also that is more than anything else, an invitation to never-ending stories of conversations, just like the ones we have here on this podcast. And the interesting thing is, you know, this idea had been hatched and we were working on the idea of like this encyclopedic guide and we were making a list. And, you know, something that we were hearing from a lot of our listeners and, and I was, you know, hearing from my friends and stuff like that is, is that people felt like they weren't good enough Jews, right? They didn't know enough. They didn't do enough. And, and, what we wanted to do with this podcast was basically say that's that's okay, right? That's that's fine. You're you are who you are, and you this you know we're gonna sort of talk about stuff that matters, and you know through that you can connect. And then what happened as we were writing the book was you know Pittsburgh happened, right? Like suddenly America became a scary place for Jews, and so these people who were already feeling this sense of insecurity about how much they knew, and if they went to synagogue and they didn't know all the lyrics or all the melodies, they wouldn't you know they would be shunned or however whatever keeps people from synagogue. And I love you refer to as, as lyrics, but it's amazing. I don't even know what, what do they do? What do they do there? But this idea that we weren't good enough if you don't know every single thing and, and, and that someone might ask you a question and you didn't know became compounded by the sense of actual insecurity we feel in America. And so that really, I think, for our podcast took on a, a really heightened importance and for the book so that now we actually want a guide that you could open to any page and find, you know, Billy Joel and Al Jolson and also Jonah Joseph and Jubu, which is like those Jews who practice like a Buddhism-inflected form of Judaism. So basically this idea that there is so much variety in what you can know about Judaism and so much that you can be interested in. And we want to just reflect that that diversity back at our listeners who have always been pushing us to reflect the diversity that they embody and that we've been really trying, been challenging us to do so. I was also thinking that our listeners range from Haredi ultra-Orthodox Jews all the way to utterly secular and non-Jews, right? And so what that means is they don't even know how to talk to each other sometimes. And looking at that page, right, there's a certain kind of Christian or Jew or Muslim, right, a human who knows Billy Joel, who of course is, is Jewish, right, or Scarlett Johansson, who is Jewish. 
Uh, and then there's somebody of a different generation who knows Al Jolson. And then there might be a super religious person who knows nothing of secular culture but knows a lot about the book of Jonah uh, or, or the biblical character Joseph. And so these people have a lot to learn from each other. And to put all of these different characters into one book is to give something to the very, very religious who might not know secular culture and say, hey, here's why Billy Joel matters. And also to give something to like the Scarlett Johansson movie fans who don't know who Joseph is in Torah and say, here's something that matters. And I think that's, you know, kind of like exactly the point of this book, because we spent so much time and so much energy discussing and sort of categorizing and cataloging the things that set us apart. Like, well, I'm a conservative Jew. I'm, I'm a reformed Jew. I'm a reconstructionist, lesbian, organic, vegan Jew. I mean, all these distinctions matter and they're important. I'm not saying that they're not. But really, the only thing that truly matters is we're all Jews uh, or, or Jew adjacent or Jew lovers, right? And the thing that this book does is come up with one giant common ground that is, yes, edifying, but also, if I may, funny. Look, it wasn't easy putting together the book. There were a lot of choices to make about what stays in and what stays out. And we worked really, 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 really hard to get a little of everything and not miss anything. Of course, we failed. But look, we didn't want to be too Ashkenormative, right? We know that, in fact, world Jewry is much, much more diverse than the synagogue that somebody might have grown up in in a given American town. Uh, we wanted to have women as well as men. We wanted to be sensitive to all kinds of diversity within the Jewish community. We wanted to look at cultural Jews as well as religious Jews. We wanted to have a sense of geographical diversity. We wanted to give attention to Jews from all over the world. And Finally, look, we really are trying to capture all of Jewish history from creation, arguably, when the Jewish uh, spark began, all the way down to, like, yesterday. It was tough, but look, you can acquire a copy and, and yell at us about what we left out. I actually think those are going to be the most fun conversations. If you go to tabletmag.com slash newishjewish, you can buy from your favorite purveyor, including IndieBound, so the money goes to independent bookstores, tabletmag.com slash newishjewish. I cannot wait to get the angry emails about what we left out. And, you know, it's not just us. We had an amazing team of contributors who worked with us on this book. Some of your favorite unorthodox guests, like A.J. Jacobs, Marjorie Engel, Molly Yeh, Batsheva Marcus. We really leaned on a lot of people for their expertise in a bunch of different areas. We had a ton of our tablet coworkers helping us with this. There's essays spread throughout the book, you know, Jews in sports, Jews in music, Jews in Hollywood. There's a, a guide to what greetings you say on which holiday. There's a great guide to modern Yiddish terms like... Facebook friend. So a big thank you to all our contributors who really helped make this book what it is. Philip Roth wrote the Philip Roth entry from Beyond the Grave. It's very impressive that he did act. I didn't think you would make the deadline. Get it? <laughs> uh, and so here is what you're going to hear right now. We did not want to deliver an audiobook version of this book. Though there is probably in the future, we hope, going to be an audiobook version of this. Uh, for now, we really wanted to give you a taste of the spirit of the book and hopefully inspire you to go out there and get this book and start these conversations. So we picked 18 entries that we sort of uh, thought were good grounds for a lively discussion. And we have a very special guest, very special guest, guiding us through these entries. And so now, without further ado, here it is, the Newish Jewish Encyclopedia. Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried. This is unorthodox. Black and white cookies. We are here in my favorite restaurant in the world, the place where I go about once a week. Barney Greengrass on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, home to the world's finest black and white cookie. Uh, here to talk to the master about a very important question. Hello, sir. My name's Gary Greengrass. I'm the third generation owner here at Barney Greengrass. Therefore, the absolute indisputable master of black and white cookies. I don't know if I'm the absolute, but I'm the salute. <laughs> and now to the matter at hand. Some people start from the brown side, some people start from the white side, some people eat straight down the middle. Adjudicate this once and for all. What's the correct way to eat a black and white cookie? The way I put it on my right tire and my left tire here, I go right down the Jewish center. I have it right down the middle. I obviously have seen what people break them in half and they seem to want to share it. The black half and the white half to me, right down the middle, and I work my way right through it. I think it's all personal. Um, I think people want to try to extend their mini black and white if they're buying the smaller size so they could share it with their friends and family. They go, oh, like they feel like it's, I'm putting it right on the 50-yard line. I'm breaking it right down the middle. So it's like a piece of matzo cracking in half. They're going to hide half of it 
and the other half the lead. So we may all enjoy. Gary Greengrass, thank you so much. You're quite welcome. Hi, what's your name? Dana. When you eat that cookie, do you eat the black side or the white side first? Uh, white side. Why? Because. Good reason. Stage. Leo, there's more than just Yom Kippur, right? We've got a whole bunch of fast days in Judaism. We have so many fast days and half fast days and all kinds of things. Uh, there's one that you and I are particularly obsessed with that listeners of the show <laughs> may, may, may know. What, what's, what's our special day, Mark? When do we celebrate? <laughs> our special day is, is Som Gedalia, the fast of Gedalia, which I, I take to be, for, for some reason, it's just the fast day that cheers me up the most. Who was this fine gentleman uh, to have merited a, a whole fast day just to himself? Well, uh, Gedalia, as everybody knows, right, uh, was an early governor of Judea who uh, was assassinated by a, a fellow Jew, as recounted in in Second Kings, which might argue for all of us taking Tzom Gedalia a little more seriously, right? And yet, as our friend Rabbi Joseph Tulushkin reminded us at a recent live show in Stamford, Connecticut, which we're going to air in a couple weeks, Tzom Gedalia still functions kind of as the butt of jokes. Here's Rabbi Tulishkin from that live show. Who's talking before about Tzom Gedalia? We're all talking about Tzom Gedalia. Gedalia. That's our favorite fast day. You know why? They tell a story about a man. They ask him, do you fast on Tzom Gedalia? Tzom Gedalia, how many of you do not know what Tzom Gedalia is? Okay, so to be fair... Rabbi Hammerman. (laughs) (laughs) Your congregants don't know the fifth most important fast day? It falls on the day after Rosh Hashanah when a man named Gedalia ben Achikam was assassinated. He had been sort of appointed uh, as the governor after the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians. And and a fast day was declared. The next time the actual Jewish leader of a state was assassinated like that, it was Yitzhak Rabin. But anyway, they asked the man if he fasted on some Gedalias. He said, no, I don't. And he said, why not? He said, I had three reasons. If Gedalia hadn't died, then he would have been dead by now anyway. (laughs) If I died, Gedalia wouldn't fast for him. And if I don't fast on Yom Kippur, why should I fast on some Gedalia? Shabbat in seven steps. When I was growing up, Shabbat wasn't really a thing. We didn't, you know, take the day off on Saturday. We didn't not watch TV or go to synagogue or anything like that. It was pretty much a normal day. I mean, a normal weekend day, which is obviously different from the week. But I always sort of thought of Shabbat and keeping Shabbat as something like only really religious Jews did. You know, the ones who had like the Shabbat ovens and took the Shabbat elevators and you know prayed all the time and were really, really strict in their religious observance. But as I've gotten older and as I've gotten busier, honestly, the idea of taking a break has just gotten so much more appealing. And Shabbat is actually this built-in break that Jews designed like a gazillion years ago, a time to unplug, unwind, and just take it easy. You don't have to be religious and you don't have to do anything serious. Here's our guide to bringing Shabbat into your weekly life in seven easy steps. One, bless the people you love. Nothing gets you in a better mood than feeling grateful for the people who make your life so rich. You can look up the specific blessing online or in a prayer book called a Siddur, or just speak from the heart and let them know how you really feel. I love that idea of just like a weekly reminder to tell people you love them or you care about them or you appreciate them. Two, light some candles. There's a blessing for this one too, but the point is to enjoy the warmth and the light and the special atmosphere that lets you know tonight's going to be different. Who doesn't love a good artisanal candle? Three, enjoy a cup of wine. Thanking God is optional. Wine on a Friday night? That sounds easy enough. Four, invest in a really good meal. You don't have to be at work the next morning, so why not put in a little extra time and plan a fun meal? Also, a challah makes any meal special. Love me some challah. And you don't have to make this meal. You could order in, you could go out with friends, just something that sets Friday night dinner apart from all other dinners. Five, rest. You may not be one to observe Shabbat hardcore. You may want to turn on your TV or hop in the car, but why not capture at least some of the day's glory by deciding not to check your work email or putting down your cell phone for 25 hours? You'd be surprised at how far a little digital detox can go. Honestly, that's the most appealing idea about this all to me. Six, learn something. If you're curious, read some Torah or another Jewish text. But even if you simply pick up a book about birds or cooking or anything else you're into and spend a little time learning something that makes you happier, you are on the right track. 
I would love to read more, and I think Saturday is actually the perfect day to do that. Seven, say goodbye. As Shabbat ends, we do Havdalah, a special ceremony to celebrate the end of our holy day and the beginning of the week. Try it. There's spices, it smells nice, and it's really, really fun. Okay, so Havdalah might be a little much for people, but still, try putting your phone away, reading a book, going for a walk, eating some great challah, and telling the people in your life that you love them and appreciate them. That sounds easy enough, right? Shabbat Shalom, no matter how you do it. Barbara Streisand! Barbara Streisand is amazing. Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand. I'm Wayne Hoffman, Tablet Magazine's executive editor, huge Barbara Streisand fan, but we have to admit, over her enormous career, she has made some missteps. She's done a lot of covers, not all of them good. Here's a terrible one. Guava Jelly, 1974. She covered Bob Marley and the Whalers. If you've never heard it, you might not want to listen. You want to hear a good cover? Listen to her cover, Cole Porter's Come to the Supermarket in Old Peking. It was on her 1963 debut album and appeared in an early episode of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Definitely worth a listen. If you want to buy a kite or a pup to keep you up at night or a dwarf who used to know Snow White or a frog who loves to sing, come to the supermarket in Old Peking. They have something. In the 70s, she turned to disco. Some good, some bad. Here is a bad one. The theme song to the very forgettable movie she also was in called The Main Event in 1979. Awful. Truly awful. The same year, she released No More Tears, which you might know as Enough is Enough with Donna Summer, which, you have to admit, however you feel about disco, is a fantastic song that still holds up 40 years later. She made a ton of duets in her career, some of them quite good, some of them not so much. You want a bad one? 1988's Till I Loved You with Don Johnson. Yes, Don Johnson. This I had to rank even lower than her two big hits with Barry Gibb, Guilty, and What Kind of Fool. With Don Johnson, it's worse. And now I can ever imagine my living without you. It seems I spend all of my time thinking only about you. You want a good schlocky duet? With Neil Diamond, she recorded You Don't Bring Me Flowers in 1978. It's schlocky, but fight me. It's a great song. She's also, of course, famous for her show tunes. She's recorded so many wonderful show tunes in her career on her Broadway album, her Back to Broadway album, lots of terrific versions of Sondheim songs but they're not all terrific. She's perhaps best known for her version of Memory from Cats in 1982, but I'd put it on her not-so-great list. Touch me, it's so easy to she took a bombastic song and upped the bombast, and in the process really paved the way for Celine Dion to have a career. That in itself is reason to ding that song in my book. You want to hear Barbara Streisand knock the hell out of a show tune? Go back to the 1962 recording of Pins and Needles, the 1937 Labor Union musical. In 1962, they put out a 25th anniversary edition of the cast album with Barbra Streisand singing Nobody Makes a Pass at Me, which is one of the greatest and funniest things she's ever recorded. Have a listen. Oh dear, what can the I use Coca-Cola and Marmola, Crisco, Lesco, and Mazola, X, Lux, and Bapex. So why ain't I got sex? I use Alvaline and... Denominations! 
Mark, what's the deal with all those different Jewish denominations? You mean like conservative, orthodox, reconstructionist, renewal, secular humanist, yada, yada, yada? Yeah, why can't we all just get along? Here's the short version. The orthodox attempted to keep all the commandments in Torah. The reform movement says you can discard a bunch of them. And the conservative movement tries to have it every which way. For example, in the 1950s, the conservative movement said it was permissible to drive on Shabbat, but only if you were driving to synagogue. Now, the Reconstructionists, who you might have heard of, they will help you compose a new blessing over your car when you drive on Shabbat, while the Renewal Jews would prefer that you just dance your way there. All right, Stephanie, stop me if you've heard this one before. Ready? The really ambitious and narcissistic son of a very wealthy man shocks the world by somehow ascending to power, mainly by colluding with a large empire, but he's still just a real estate guy at heart, so he spends most of his energy building huge structures that are very, very fancy. A lot of people are saying lives in an exorbitantly flashy lifestyle and is hated by pretty much everybody. Who am I talking about? Your Herod's race. Your Herod's case. I did that in camp. I was priest three. King Herod, of course, to who we owe Masada, the port in Kisalia, and of course, most important, the second temple. Build the Western Wall. <laughs> Come on, King of the Jews. So it's 5780 and celebrity sells. We wanted to make this episode really, really special. So we brought in a few ringers. So we went on Cameo.com and asked a few celebrities who they thought was the greatest Jew who ever lived. First up is Bethany Frankel from The Real Housewives of New York City. I don't know that I could speak to the greatest Jews of all time, but like iconic Jews, Jerry Seinfeld is an iconic Jew for obvious reasons. So is Billy Crystal, Gary Marshall, Larry King. But like, I don't know if they've changed the world in any way that you're thinking. I don't know if you mean like save the world, save Israel Jews. I just mean like when I think about, I think of Andy Cohen when I think of like a serious Jew that is good for the Jews and takes being Jewish so seriously. Wow. What an amazing, I'm thinking of like Carl Reiner too, and Rob Reiner. Hello, this is Corey Feldman, and I have a special message for, I guess, a show called Unorthodox, which sounds very, very unorthodox. I mean, the whole idea of it sounds unorthodox, especially if you're talking about Jews and calling them unorthodox because they're maybe not really orthodox, but what if they are orthodox and you're still calling them unorthodox? That would be an insult. Anyway, Lechayim, Josh, Josh is the one who put me up to this, Josh Cross, which by the way is not a very Jewish name either. Uh, that's definitely unorthodox. But anyway, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I'm insulting your show, but I just have to speak my mind. Anyway, I was asked to tell you who I believe the greatest Jew who ever lived was... And, of course, I, I've got to say me, because who else would be a, a greater Jew that I could think of? I sing, I dance, I act. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. Jesus Christ. I mean, literally, Jesus Christ was obviously the dopest Jew that ever did live. First of all, you know, changed everything. I mean, he was old school to the max. He was like the OG, original gangsta. All the dudes were jealous of him. He didn't have the best judgment in friends, but he definitely, definitely was close with God. And for that, I got to say, big up, you're my man, Jesus. L'chaim, shalom, mazel, mazel, good things. Have a great one. Peace and love. Okay, Corey. Next, Steve Gutenberg, the Goot. I'm here recording on the most popular Jewish podcast called Unorthodox. I'm actually conservative. And I was asked, who is the greatest Jew that ever lived? I gotta tell you something, there's many, many great Jews. You know, you start with Albert Einstein, you go to Jerry Lewis, go to George Siegel, gee whiz, uh, my great-grandfather, Joseph Gutenberg, a great Jew. Rabbi Kapner, my uh, rabbi who or misfit me, great Jew. I would say uh, Rabbi Stephen Carr from uh, Calliath Israel in Palisades, great Jew. Chaim Frankel, the cantor at our temple, great Jew. I, I could go on and on, and I think I will. George Siegel, 
Did I say great Jew? Barbara Streisand, great Jew. You know, I heard Christopher Columbus came from Barcelona and uh, one out of five, I think, before the, uh, actually the Inquisition, was Jewish there. And he was a great Jew who actually had to hide his Judaism because he wanted to be successful. And he got uh, Isabella to give him the three boats. Actually, Columbus was a Jew. So there you go. Great Jews. Wait, are we sure Columbus was Jewish? This is Jeff Roth. Great to be here on Unorthodox. The greatest Jew of all time has got to be Adam Sandler because he went mainstream Jewish comedy for my generation. Everybody was doing corny Jewish jokes, cheap jokes, big nose jokes. But Adam Sandler did the Hanukkah song on Saturday Night Live. And after I heard that, I was like, Jews can be cool. I'm never doing a cheap Jewish joke again. So from my perspective as a comedian working today, Adam Sandler is the greatest. Shalom. Hello, I'm John Lovitz here on the Jewish podcast, Unorthodox. I don't know why you wanted me on this because uh, I guess there's, there's a rumor going around that I'm a Jew and uh, I'm not a Jew. I'm Jew-ish. Anyway, the greatest Jew who ever lived. And let's keep in mind, this podcast is called Unorthodox, not Orthodox. So I have, actually there's three. Number one, of course, would be me. Number two would be Jesus. Look what the guy started. He was Jewish. And uh, JC, I don't think his name was Jesus Christ. I can't imagine a Jewish, uh, a, a, a Jewish parents naming their kid Jesus Christ. It's probably Jace, like JC, like Jacob Cohen. And the greatest Jew of all, of course, was Abraham because he started the whole thing and Christianity is based on him and, and uh, the uh, Muslim religion, everything, goes back to Abraham. Oh, did I mention my mother's maiden name is Abraham? Hello. And we're back to me. A full circle. Or should I say circle? Curses! Our favorite maledictions in Ladino, Esperanto, Yiddish, and Hebrew. Sure, you can curse in English, but why wouldn't you use one of the languages of our forefathers to do it even better? So here's my favorite Yiddish curse of all time. Gekaken ofenyam. Am I saying that right? Amazing. It literally means go shit in the ocean. It's sort of more colloquially used to say, like, go jump in a lake. But go shit in the ocean is just so deeply profound so and aggressive. I would like, in a tribute to my father, to resurrect one of his favorite words. This is from Ladino, this amazing Sephardi language. And the word is demikulu, which means it is like my ass. So how, for example, Leo, would one use in conversation demikulu? Uh, the last season of Game of Thrones, that was really demikulu. And that means like it was really bad? <laughs> mm -hmm. Wow. Remember that episode that was so dark you couldn't see anything? That was really demikulu. <laughs> This page of the Jewish Jewish Encyclopedia, How to Curse in Jewish, has swears from Ladino, Yiddish, Hebrew, and Esperanto. And what I love about this page is that it actually ties in so well to the rest of the book, right? So if you're wondering, why do we have Esperanto swear words? I mean, Esperanto was supposed to be this universal language, right? It wasn't Jewish. You actually can go to the entry for Esperanto and discover why in its origins Esperanto was Jewish. And then among the Yiddish swears, right, Gekachen often yam, the one that Stephanie loves so much, go shit in the ocean, you see the word kaken there, which means to, to crap or to shit. And it makes you think Alta Cocker, which actually means like an old shitter, an old crapper. And of course, we have an entry for the, the wonderful term to refer to an, an, a crotchety elderly Jewish person of Alta Cocker. So it's as if like all of Judaism comes together in the page, How to Curse in Jewish. And you see so many, you know, inspirations too of, of, of where our people's journeys have taken. So for example, one of my favorite Hebrew curses is Kibinimat, which is taken from a Russian term, which suggests that you should go visit your mother who had just, shall we say, concluded having m marital intercourse. Ew. Ew. Russian is a beautiful language. So it's like language. The, the original your mama joke. It, it is, in one word, that is very widely used in contemporary Hebrew. In Russia, your mama jokes you. That's right. Liel kibinimat. Kibinimat. The Rebbe. Rebbe, meaning rabbi, 
is a term that some observant Jews use to refer to their spiritual leader. But say the Rebbe, and you're really only talking about one person, the late Lubavitcher leader Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who passed away in 1994. A man of extraordinary insight. His idea was that there's no such thing as a religious Jew or a secular Jew, a reform, a conservative or orthodox Jew. There are only Jews. And the most important thing is to make every Jew feel welcome and loved. So the Rebbe came up with the concept of emissaries or shluchim, people who go all over the world with a sole purpose of just having a warm Jewish welcoming home. If anyone ever comes up to you in the street and says, excuse me, are you Jewish? Most likely, they're people from Chabad, the movement that the Rebbe led. But the Rebbe wasn't just a great spiritual leader. He was also a great leader, period. And that fact did not escape the attention of his fellow world luminaries. Here is one of them reminiscing about her admiration for the Rebbe, ladies and gentlemen, Mrs. Margaret Thatcher. I wish to honor leadership itself in all that is good, honest, just, and in our way of saying it, of good report, and founded upon the great creator to whom we owe everything. And I honor the rabbi in the work he's done, in the example he's set, and the inspiration, therefore, that he has given to many, many people and will continue to give. Chinese food on Christmas. Mark Tracy, what's the deal with Jews and Chinese food? The amazing thing about it is that there's actually a relatively coherent answer to the question. Lots of Jews lived on the Lower East Side. Lots of immigrants from China also lived on the Lower East Side. This is about a hundred or so years ago. Jews didn't mind going into Chinese restaurants because unlike the Italian restaurants that were also nearby in Little Italy, there were no Virgin Marys. There was not this association that they might have had. It was Cantonese cooking, which we don't eat a lot of necessarily now, but if you know it, you know it's lots of onions and garlic, which should sound familiar. You know, braised meats it should sound very familiar, should taste very familiar. And there was, of course, shellfish and pork, but as the authors of, a, of an academic paper called Safe Trafe uh, describe in the paper, it was taken by Jews as, you know, just something in the sauce or in the egg roll or in the wonton, which Chinese restaurants on the Lower East Side absolutely marketed as kreplach, basically. And so why Christmas? It's basically what your parents probably told you. They're open, right? I mean... You know, these days, I, I, I wonder, first, I think there's there's foods of a lot more ethnicities available throughout the country, I think, which I think is a great thing. You know, it's not just your stereotypical, oh, there's a Chinese restaurant in town. Also, I think, like, I think things are more open on Christmas than they were even, like, 20 years ago, to say nothing of 50 years ago. But yeah, it was that Chinese restaurants were open on Christmas because they don't celebrate Christmas and nor do Jews. Although Jews do celebrate Christmas, they just celebrate it by going and eating Chinese food. If I say Jewish time, chances are you think of something negative. You think of that that joke, that internalized stereotype that Jews show up for things later than other people. You know, like, well, the wedding will be after sundown, 6.30, 7 p.m. We've called it for 7.30, but, you know, nothing's really going to get going until 8. I have to say I don't like this meaning of the phrase Jewish time for two reasons. One, I just don't think it's particularly true. I mean, certainly nobody who's ever met my in-laws could ever believe that all Jews are late. And I don't even believe that most Jews are late. The second thing is that it's a stereotype that lots of minority peoples have. I've heard South Asians talk about running on Indian time. African-Americans have a joke about CP, colored person time. The stereotype seems to exist among every ethnic community except the Germans and the Swiss, who of course are obsessed with being prompt and would never joke that they're late for anything. But it's one of those stereotypes that's so widespread and so useful internally to so many communities to joke about themselves 
that I think for any one community to think that it's later than others is a little bit silly. I mean, if everyone's late all the time, then it's not an interesting stereotype about any of us. So I think that we should junk that old idea of Jewish time. But I want to junk it in favor of another idea. The Jewish time that I want us to think about when we think about Jewish time is how Jews relate to everything in the day differently when their lives are infused with Judaism. For some people, you only do Hanukkah and Passover, and that's fine. But your Jewish time then is that in December and then again in March or April, something feels a little bit Jewier in the air. For some people, of course, the whole year begins to take on a different character. For some people, the year doesn't run from Labor Day to Memorial Day or from January 1st to December 31st. For some people, the year runs from Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur to Sukkot and then on to Hanukkah and Passover and Shavuos and then Tisha B'Av in the summer. And maybe there's a uh, Tuba B'Av in there and maybe there's a Shemini Atzeret and maybe there's a Tzom Gedalia and who knows what else. But for some people, the whole year gets infused with a different calendar. The beautiful thing about Jewish time is that it can run alongside secular time. An American Jew can think in terms of the fiscal year from July 1st on, the political calendar January 1st on, while simultaneously having this other calendar running inside of her soul, one that marks the Jewish holidays as well. And then there's another way that one can live Jewish time, which is just in the week. Jewish time can be you work all week and then Friday afternoon you start to power down a little bit. Maybe you make a challah. Maybe you buy one. Maybe you just run out and get pizza because that's your family's Friday night tradition. Maybe you're going to go to a movie Friday night. And then maybe Saturday's a little bit slower. Maybe you go offline. Maybe you always play Monopoly with your kids. And then Saturday evening, worldly life resumes. There's so many ways that time can be structured. And there's so many ways that the tradition offers us to have Jewish time. It's so much more than just the joke that we're late for everything. In fact, whenever you start keeping Jewish time, I think you're right on time. Leonard Cohen. If you listen to the show regularly, you may know that I'm a little bit of a Leonard Cohen fan. And by fan, I mean fanatic. I had the pleasure of writing a biography of Leonard Cohen and also getting to know him. But as much as I absolutely love Leonard Cohen's music, there's one thing that really bugs me. The fact that in about 30% of movies and TV shows made in the last 20 years, there will inevitably at some point be a scene in which the character stares dramatically into the distance and on the soundtrack comes, that's right, Hallelujah. Now don't get me wrong, I love that song. It's really, really great. But sometimes it's really jarring to see it juxtaposed with some really schlocky piece of movie. And so here they are, the five absolute worst uses of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah in popular culture. In number five, we have The Watchmen. I don't care how big a fan you are of superheroes, but to see Night Owl and Silk Spectre fucking in a spaceship above New York as Hallelujah plays in the background, that is, I'm pretty sure, not what Leonard Cohen had in mind when he wrote the song. And number four, Lord of War. Because if there's one thing that is just slightly less hallelujah than superheroes, it's Nick Cage. And in this movie in which Nicolas Cage plays an arms dealer, to see him standing at his apartment just before his marriage falls apart and saying to his wife, I'll come back by Thursday. We'll go somewhere nice. The sea. Hallelujah. It's just an absolute travesty. At number three, of course, the most famous use of Hallelujah in movies, Shrek. Uh, I like the movie, I like Mike Myers, but I don't think uh, having an ogre stare into broken glass and seeing his hideous face really justifies the use of Hallelujah. And number two, the OC. Really, this is one of the funniest scenes, I think, in all of TV history. Ryan pulls Marissa's body from a flaming car, walks very slowly into the dewy night as Hallelujah starts playing, and when Leonard hits the Hallelujah, the car explodes, and so did my mind. Which brings us to number one. I love Leonard, and I want to honor him. So number one is not going to the worst, but to the best. The best 
ever use of hallelujah in a movie or a TV show. In 2012, right after Hurricane Sandy devastated New York, in which Adam Sandler and Paul Schaefer took the stage. And instead of belting out just another horrible, self-important, bombastic, sad ballad, they started playing Hallelujah. And I looked at the screen for a moment, feeling a little bit like, huh, really? Sandler singing Hallelujah, seriously? But then he just did this. Yeah, New York, you've dealt with crap before, like squeegee men and tunnel whores, and restaurant delivery biking right through you. The puke on your stoops every Sunday morn. Times Square losing all its porn. Original Ray's Pizza closing to you. But hallelujah. Hallelujah. Sandy, screw you. Screw ya. We'll get through you. We'll get through ya. Cause we're new. All I have to say to that is, hallelujah. Death! Leo, when you think of death in Judaism, what comes to mind? Here's the amazing thing about that question. The first question I think that anyone asks seriously when they kind of want to really grok, you know, what Judaism is about is, what do you guys say about what happens after death? And here's the amazing thing. The answer is actually not a whole lot, because if we knew what happened after death, we would be on an entirely different pay grade. And, and Judaism is a religion, I think, kind of incredibly doesn't want to peddle in the stuff of like, well, you go to a cheerful place and everything is magnificent and you eat, you know, the meat of a whale and you drink sparkling wine. It basically says, okay, look, instead of focusing on some vision of the afterlife, of which Judaism has plenty to say, it's not that it has nothing to say, but instead of focusing on that, how about you focus on what actually happens to you when you lose a loved one? And how about instead of putting you in this position where you have to deal with the grief and figure out what you're trying to do, how about we help you by putting together this almost like 12-step program, right? Mark, what are the steps? What are we supposed to do immediately after someone dies? Okay, well, so Judaism, it's, it's like a four-step program, right? There's, there's Aninut, which is the first day or really before the body is buried. And that's when you're just in shock. You don't even have to talk. Everyone's supposed to take care of everything for you. Uh, and then what comes next is the, the period that most Jews know best, which is Shiva, which means seven. So the seven days during which you stay inside and people come to you and they bring you food and they pray with you and they just kind of nurture you. And then there's the 30 days, right? The, the, the first month, Shloshim. And I've never understood Shloshim. Leah, what is Shloshim? That's the 30-day period, uh, you know, 30 days after someone's uh, passing, in which you commemorate the fact that a month has passed. And basically, that is the pivoting point, right? From this period of deep mourning in which the world seemed to really have stopped and you really can't believe that you're supposed to go on living after losing a loved one, to a, a slow and gradual introduction into... Not overcoming, not precisely healing, but getting used to the idea of your loss. And then there's the whole year, right? Some market at 11 months, some it's more like 12, but there's the whole year of, of Avelut, of mourning. And during that year, Jews might take on a number of practices. Some of them avoid going to super festive occasions, right? They won't go to concerts or big parties during that year because they want to just keep something somber about that time. And then, of course, other people make it a practice to go to services, to find a minion, a prayer quorum, and say the mourner's Kaddish, to nudge their loved one into the world to come, uh, however we conceive of it. So it is. It's this whole four-step program, and it's it's unlike anything that any other religion has. And, and Shiva is something that's actually been depicted in pop culture a ton. There's uh, This Is Where I Leave You, the Jonathan Tropper novel that became a movie, and then there's Nathan Englander's Kaddish.com. I mean, Shiva is like a plot device that works really, really well because it's this time when everyone is forced to come together and sit on those low chairs and, and really deal with what has happened. But it's also where you drown yourself in all the food that people have brought over and you don't think you can eat another bagel for the rest of your life. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. 
Tony nominee Betsy Adam, and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. And now it's time for more celebrity cameos. This round, they're telling us their favorite Jewish food and Jewish holidays. Yo, what's up, Jew crew? It's Polly Shore. Chava, nachi lachava, nachi lachava, nachi lachava. Happy Yom Kippur, kids. No, wait, Rosh Hashanah. Oh, wait, Hanukkah. Damn it, I'm a bad Jew, I knew it. Anyways, my favorite Jew food is definitely kreplox and some matzah brai. What's wrong with matzah brai? And then what else do I love so much? I love whatever you guys love. You know, some kefilta fish, some latkes, and of course, some horseradish and some blintzes from the stupidest Jew on the West Coast. Later, dudes. Bye. Hip-hop, you don't stop. Check it out, it's your man Wonder Mike, baby. Two Dynasty. And Diggity Dog, Master G. And we are the Sugar Hill Gang. So we just talking to a man and all the folks here on Unorthodox, the podcast, to let you know what our favorite Jewish food is. Yeah! Mine is matzo balls. Matzo balls soup, baby. I'm a soup lover. I like lox, yo. Yeah, that's what's up. And I've been eating lox soup. That's it. Since I was a knee-high like some good lox. Unorthodox. Unorthodox. No doubt. Alright, my name is Michael Rappaport. Uh, the greatest Jewish holiday. I have to say Rosh Hashanah comes in at third. Yom Kippur is number two for me. And I know I'm a grown-up and I know uh, I'm not supposed to uh, be getting any gifts on Hanukkah. But as a child, Hanukkah was always my favorite Jewish holiday. So I have to go with Hanukkah being number one. Of course now as, a, as an adult, it's fun to give the gifts, but I will never, ever admit to a Hanukkah not being my favorite of all the Jewish holidays. And I'm wishing everybody a happy new year. Hello, I'm Mario Cantone. My favorite Jewish food is very, very specific. It's a sesame bagel from Utopia Bagels on Utopia Parkway in Queens with a smear of cream cheese on each side and a light layer of smoked sable on each side, open-faced, open-faced. Not sandwich, open-faced. So that's my favorite Jewish food. I know that's not very unorthodox, but... And then second place, I love a good latke with sour cream and applesauce, and I love 
a cheese blitz with some blueberry compote. I don't even know if that's Jewish food, but I think it is. I'm Italian, although my middle name is David, which is somewhat of a Jewish name. So <clears throat> I'm everything. Yo, what's up? This is OG Tone Loke in the house. And I was wondering, you know, what is my favorite Jewish food? And you know what? I had a second grade teacher named Miss Hamp, and she had these things called potato latkes, and I call them potato pancakes, or she called them potato pancakes. And I think that is my favorite Jewish, my most favorite Jewish food. Peace out, y'all. This is Tone Loke. Potato pancakes in the house, or potato latkes. Ha <laughs> ha. I'm Gilbert Gottfried, and my favorite Jewish holiday is the sacred holiday of Golda Meir broke all kinds of boundaries. Israel's first female prime minister, one of the first women in history to lead her country, and also the subject of Broadway's longest-running one-woman show, Golda's Balcony. We asked Tova Feldshu, the actress who portrayed her in Golda's Balcony, what it was like to literally embody the legendary leader. Here's what she had to say. Golda, oh my God, 168 pounds, and I tell you, the bird seat for those tits, they almost killed me, that, that stuff. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Is that oh, what yeah. they use, birdseed? They use birdseed. And then in, when I played <laughs> London with Golda, the dresser taught me how to create varicose veins with thick wool. And every night, uh, which I, I just came back from Montreal, I would put on one pair of stockings, and then before the support hose went on, you, you start to carve your vascular system every night. And they said, Miss Felch, you let's, let's sew your veins. And I said, no, no, I want to do this. I want to do this. It was, it was, a, it was a great thrill. <laughs> Gematria. Can someone explain what Gematria is and why Jews are so obsessed with it? Oh, absolutely. This is one of my <laughs> favorite obsessions. Gematria is the, uh, the science and the art of assigning numeric values to Hebrew letters and then trying to find out what the numeric value of different words are. So, for example, the letter Aleph, the first letter of the alphabet, is one. Bet is two. Gimel is three, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, if you're ever wondering why the number 18 is so prominent in Jewish life, it's because 18 stands for Chai. Chet is 8, Yud is 10, and Chai, of course, is a Hebrew word that means alive or life. And of course, gematria can be done with anything, right? So for example, if you want the gematria for the word for bagel, it happens to be 55, right? You can, you can do it with anything, right, Liel? Not only can you do it with anything, but you could take any numeric value and then figure out what it represents. So we, for example, know 18 to be high, but it has other meanings as well. For example, the Hebrew word for copy editing also equals 18, hagaha. That is a sacred task. That is Particularly a in this task. book it was. The Hebrew term for Adonai Echad, one God, equals 18, as does Buddha. Whoa. Doesn't that blow your mind? That blows All my mind. equals 18. Coincidence? I think not. Holocaust movies. Hi, my name's Jordan Hoffman. I'm a film critic, and I wrote a number of entries for the encyclopedia. One of the entries was on Holocaust cinema, which is a huge topic in itself. And uh, I think the best way to approach Holocaust cinema is that there are different types of Holocaust movies. And the way we broke it down is in five different categories. And the first one is uh, the gateway film, one of the most obvious, what is this thing called the Holocaust? What, what do I watch? And obviously, the answer is Schindler's List. It's the most famous, and it's still a great movie, uh, a great entry point, but it's not exhaustive. I would say the the exhaustive film, if you really want to get into it, would be Claude Lanzmann's Shoah, which is eight and a half, nine hours documentary with no footage from newsreels. It's all contemporary for the time. You know, you come away, it's like you've had conversations with witnesses for two straight days. It's, it's a remarkable experience. Then there's the, what I like to call the Abyss film, which is just bleak 
absolute horror, absolute terror. I mean, this is, you know, the worst atrocity in human history, mechanized uh, genocide. And for that, a relatively recent film called Son of Saul uh, from a um, director by the name of Laszlo Nimish. It's only about five years, uh, less than five years old, but I think that it is a wonderful movie that I saw once and never want to see again. It's bleak and miserable and depressing. Uh, there are a number of what I would call psychological films, how the Holocaust has affected people after the fact. Movies like um, Sophie's Choice or Enemies a Love Story or a, a recent film called Ida, a Polish film that won an Academy Award. More arty films like The Night Porter or The Pawnbroker starring Rod Steiger who was a um, Jewish pawnbroker working in Harlem and experiencing PTSD. And finally I'd like to talk about the fantasy film which uh, is you know the Holocaust is a subgenre, and there can be good entertainment about that too. And the best one for that will be Inglorious Bastards, Quentin Tarantino's action film where you get to see Adolf Hitler machine gunned into hamburger at the end. So, you know, that's, that's a good way to end it, I think. Jufro! The Jufro as we discuss on page 147, is what happens to many of us when we just let our hair do whatever it wants to do for a few months. There is a backstory to the Jufro. In the early years of the flowering of Jewish ethnic pride, the late 1960s, early 1970s, corresponding to the victory in the Six-Day War, they didn't call it the Jufro. They called it the Isro. I-S-R-O. Oh, wow. Yes, deep, deep, deep knowledge. The, the Isro. If you're looking at a 1970, 1971, blue mimeographed underground Jewish newspaper read by a member of like Fabrangan in Washington, D.C. or Havarat Shalom in Boston, they're not calling it the Jufro. They're calling it the Isro. So the thing that grows on my head is an Isro. Making the desert bloom. <laughs> <laughs> and guys, see me before I, I hit that flat iron. You wouldn't believe it. Well, look, I don't think any of you or us can compare to the four photographs that we put in to illustrate the Jufro in the newest Jewish encyclopedia. And I'm going to tell people who three of them are. They have to buy the book to get the fourth. Bob Dylan, of course, Robert Zimmerman, terrific Isro. Seth Rogen, splendid Israel. He's in Jufro territory, based on chronology. Fair enough. By the time he came along, it was the Jufro. But an original OG Israel, Art Garfunkel, and the fourth, a major Israel guy, mid to late 1970s television situation comedy actor. I believe his show was on ABC. I'll let the J. Crew do the sleuthing. The Jufro has been here for a long time, but I think the Israel is back. The Israel is making a huge Hi, this is Lisa Ann Sandell. I've worked in the world of children's books for the last 20 years, and I also have the dubious, I mean, wonderful joy and privilege of being married to an Orthodox co-host, Liel Leibowitz. Judy Bloom has been beloved by generations of readers because her novels thrum with so much life and vibrancy, all the confusion and humor and eagerness to grow up that every tween or teen can recognize. Her books beat with a heart that is true and humane and funny as hell. So here goes. The top five things I learned about life from Judy Bloom's books. First, the best portrayal of an older and younger sibling's relationship. As an older sister, I found much to identify with in Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. Peter's feelings of invisibility and frustration were perfect for the older kid who resents his younger and much more adorable little brother or sister who seems to get whatever he or she wants. Tills of a fourth grade nothing taught me how to deal with all of that frustration. Next. So I was a nerd, and as one might expect, I was sometimes the victim of bullying as a kid. I think one of the most powerful and timeless depictions of bullying is blubber. I remember the first time I read this, I was probably seven or eight, and I felt like I'd been struck by a bolt of lightning. It resonated so deeply. I knew what it felt like to be bullied, though never as severely as Linda was bullied. But the slippery slope Jill tumbled down felt very real and very scary, and I knew I didn't want to do as she had done. Number three, I have scoliosis. My sister has an even more severe form of scoliosis and had to wear a brace when she was young. Reading Deanie not only made me feel like I wasn't a freak and like there was hope, but it also taught me what those mysterious exams administered by the school nurse in the girls' bathroom were, you know, the ones where we had to bend over and walk back and forth. Number four, when I was going to Hebrew school three days a week at my childhood Orthodox shul, 
It didn't really occur to me that I could have a relationship with God outside those walls, outside the bounds of what I was being taught. But as much as I enjoyed reading about how Margaret and her friends in Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret talked about periods and bras and boys, a total revelation for me, what I found most compelling, most curious and liberating, was how Margaret had such an intense relationship with God despite the fact that she didn't have any official affiliations. And last but not least, how many of us learned about hand jobs and penises with names and safe, consensual teen sex from forever? And how many of us read those steamy scenes surreptitiously over and over and over? I'll close with saying that now, as a parent, I can see what an awesome roadmap Judy Bloom laid out for being supportive and realistic and loving. Judy Bloom is a true hero. This is Josh Cross, the producer of Unorthodox, and my idea of Jewish hell is watching your three hosts debate the intricacies of Whoopi Goldberg, Rube Goldberg, and Jeff Goldblum, but leaving out the most important entry of all, Goldenberg's peanut shoes. We don't talk about hell a lot in Judaism, so we had to improvise. So we asked the listeners to give us their idea of Jewish hell. My name is Heather Brown, and my idea of Jewish hell is store-bought challah. Hi, J. Crew. This is Jess in Pittsburgh. My idea of hell is the sound of small dogs barking while Sean Hannity interviews Stephen Miller on Fox News. My name is Tori, and my idea of Jewish hell is eating Kirkland bagels from Costco. My name is Beth, and my idea of a Jewish hell is getting food poisoning from a Yom Kippur break fast. My name is Rory Malik, and my idea of Jewish hell is reading the entire Haggadah while starving. Hi, my name is Tali Kellerstein, and my idea of a Jewish hell is a carb-free diet. My name's Jay Deitcher, and my idea of Jewish hell is Alaska. My name is Adam Diamond, and my idea of Jewish hell is eating latkes with no sour cream. Hi, my name is Joanna Sheff, and my idea of Jewish hell is movie theaters closed on Christmas Day. Hi, my name is John Tice. And my idea of Jewish hell is existing as Jared Kushner. This is Rebecca Thurman Murphy, and my version of hell is that schmuck that someone invited to the holiday meal. My name is Eric, and my idea of Jewish hell is accidentally going to a messianic synagogue. My name is Adam Engel, and my idea of a Jewish hell is Manischewitz gains a kosher wine monopoly. Hi, my name is Ethan Ritz, and my idea of Jewish hell is the line for food after Neila. This is Lauren. My idea of Jewish hell is a town where the only Chinese food is Panda Express. My name is E.G., and my idea of a Jewish hell is Thursdays Without Unorthodox. All right, so now that we've done the newest Jewish encyclopedia in 18 entries, we have good news for you, which is that the actual book has about 1,000 entries. And as I think to myself, who are these 1,000 entries for? I think about, and this is just me, but I think about the person who feels kind of on the road to conversion. Like they've been listening to our podcast. They're not really sure why. They get a certain little something, a little frisson, a little sousson of Judaism, and it kind of makes their day better. And maybe they don't tell all their friends why they're listening because they're afraid themselves of where this is going. And where it's going is that their Jewish soul is returning home. They're headed to the mikveh. They're going to convert. And this book is going to teach them a lot of the stuff along the way that they want to know. That's who I think this book is for. Stephanie, who do you think this book is for? This book is for people who don't feel very connected to their childhood Judaism. Judaism, right? They went to Hebrew school. They found it boring. They memorized some rote stuff. They know the Ten Commandments, but definitely not all 613 of them. But they want to be connected to Judaism. And then they might not be ready to go to a synagogue, but they actually want to learn a little bit more and reconnect to something that's deeply important to them, even if they can't articulate quite why. So this book is a really accessible way to just dip your toes back into Judaism and, and fill in the gaps of what you don't know and make yourself a little bit more confident in your own Judaism and find out how you want to practice and how you want to express that. Leo, what about you? Who's this book for? I'm Israeli, so I'm not going to pick one imaginary reader. I'm going to pick two imaginary readers. Uh, the first is a Shlomo like me, right? Someone who uh, lives and breathes the stuff, who davens three times a day, who bathes in hummus, who's Yum. very deeply into all things. That's what that of smell is. 
took you four years to figure it <laughs> That's out. That's what you reek of. It's the hummus <laughs> bath. It's actually tchina that, that you're smelling. <laughs> Way more prominent. It's the amba. Uh, and and so all all you want to do, you cannot imagine a better idea than just you know sitting on the couch and just diving into all these wonderfully obscure elements of of Jewish history. And then I have another reader in mind. The other reader in mind is not Jewish at all. Maybe they have a Jewish son and daughter-in-law. Maybe they have a really good Jewish friend that they just kind of, you know, are curious about. Or maybe they just, you know, always wondered why we do these things that we do and who are all these people that they sort of half hear mentioned on, on television shows uh, in the media that we own. And so for them, this book would be a really helpful guide. I think this book is also for that very, very religious listener in Lakewood or Borough Park or B'nai Brock who secretly listens to our show to get a taste, just a, a little smidge of the more secular Judaism that she left behind when she became super observant in her 20s. I think she's been listening to our show on the down low. And actually, I know this person exists because we get mail from various versions of this person. From an encrypted account. This book, which will have to be shipped to a P.O. box in the next neighborhood over or will have to be delivered secretly by that cousin whom she still stays in touch with, who's way off the derrick. We will take a Sharpie for that for that listener and write on the cover, Talmud, new volume. So whoever you are or whoever this gift is for, go to tabletmag.com slash newishjewish, buy the book, and then tell us everything we did wrong at unorthodoxatabletmag.com. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call our listener line, 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter, bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live to book us. Email producer Josh Cross, jcross with a K at tabletmag.com. You can get our swag, our t-shirts, and other goodies at bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Great Jew. Our associate producer is Sarah Fredman Ader. Great Jew. Josh Hahn helped engineer this episode. Great Jew. Thanks to Cameo and all the celebrities we troubled for help. Also, big thanks to Artists and Books, which made, created, produced, stitched, typeset, and marketed the newest Jewish encyclopedia. We especially want to thank their Leah Ronan. Great Jew. Michelle Ishe Cohen. Great Jew. Bella Lemos. Great Jew. Teresa Collier. Great Jew. And Zach Greenwald. Great Jew. Thanks to all our contributors. The book is written not just by the three of us, but also by a merry cast of other unorthodox writers and friends. And of course, thanks to all of you, the J Crew, the thousands and thousands of you who have been our family and our biggest critics over the past four years. This book is for you. And thanks to our families for letting us spend most of our time on this book and the rest of our time on this podcast. I'm looking at you, Ben Cohen. Great Jew. Thanks for giving us this idea and supporting me all throughout it. And Lisa, great Jew, who not only contributed entries to this encyclopedia, but also stayed up several nights uh, reading and commenting and editing this book. And Sid Olivia Oppenheimer, great Jew. You didn't know when we conceived our fifth child that the first year of his life would be spent with me shirking paternal duties to go to the basement to have Zoom calls with Liel and Stephanie to talk about entries for Psalms, Marcel Proust, and Protocols of the Elders of Zion. But, you know, you did marry me after all. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Great Jew. Our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Great Jew. Our theme music is by Golem. Great Jew. Online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Great Jew. Rabbinic supervision this week by us. All judgments about Judaism in the newest Jewish encyclopedia and the attendant podcast come from Mark Oppenheimer, Leah Leibovitz, and Stephanie Butnick. Great Jew. Great Jew. Great Jew. And we come to you this week from Argo Studios and also Relic Room, two of the finest sonic habitats in New York's Flatiron District. Shalom, friends. Yay! All right, guys.